0: on the Apple podcast app. Thank you. So anyway, Tom, what are you doing this week?
1: Well, this week I am uh, talking about football, Gaelic football. And in particular, Gaelic football in Shantala. In about 1940, Shantala was simply green fields, that's all an occasional farmhouse and, uh, uh, here and there. But a decade later, it was a huge uh, sprawling housing estate with a very large and young population who were slowly gradually developing a kind of sense of community, but they had no facilities of any kind. I mean, that's all it was housing estates, nothing else at mm -hmm. all. And, uh, in an attempt to kind of rectify this with the, the idea of starting up a GAA club. Four young men met together in Joel Smith's house in 1956 for what they described as informal discussions. Right. And they were pa Boyle, Broad Flaherty, Peter Ford and Wally Ford. Mm. And they established a club <laughs> and they called it St. Michael's. And the following January, uh, they held their first AGM in Tom Connolly's house in Lower Chantal Road. This is all very chantal oriented uh, happily. Gus Smith, who was a tailor, he was uh, the first chairman. Martin Cook and Wally Ford were the joint secretaries. And it was a hurling club, really. Uh, and they registered junior and underage teams. Uh, and the co-founders were all participants. They played in, in junior on junior teams had no money, uh, they had no financial support, whatever, outside of Chantelet. Uh, they found it very difficult to carry players to away games no. uh, because they had they had very little transport and very. so it was a very difficult first year or two. Uh, they often had just couldn't make up the numbers uh, which was a bit unfortunate. Um, but a strange thing happened. One evening they were training, hurling, uh, but dusk was falling and they, they couldn't see the ball. And somebody said, geez, if we had a football, we could train for much longer than this. <laughs> so one of the the, the boys there, Peter Folan, was his name. He was an apprentice in Higgins's. And the following day, he asked his boss, Michal Higgins. This would be Michal Higgins, senior now, whose son later became mayor. He asked Mihal if he could supply them with the football, and he did and therefore, he became unwittingly the first kind of sponsor, if you like, of the club. But the effect that that football had was very dramatic, because within a very short space of time, football had taken over completely from the hurling. Uh, in 1958, they had their first major success. They had a good hurling team, uh, but they got to the count or the Westboard final, but were beaten but the football minor team won the county championship.
0: That is brilliant.
1: They won it three years in a row.
0: (laughs) That is brilliant. It was
1: remarkable. I mean, this was within two years. So within four years of actually being established, they had three county titles. And it was evident in 1960, Galway County had an All-Ireland winning team and three of the players were from St. Michael's.
0: That's wonderful.
1: Ray Anderson. Sean Callaghan and Andy Donnelly. Mm-hmm. So within a couple of years, the hurling had faded away, and uh, and and the hurlers were now lining out uh, for Father Burke's Tom Burke's hurling club. So the first player that put on a Galway senior football jersey was Paddy Ryan. Uh, very quickly followed Tom Corbett and Peter Fuller. This was kind of almost instant success, really. <laughs> and then in nineteen seventy. Joe Corcoran, he was the captain of the county minor team, and they won the All-Ireland. So it was his privilege to bring the cup back to Galway, and a huge crowd turned out uh, to see him and welcome the team back. And in 1972, Martin Noonan won an All-Ireland medal with the Under-21 team. So the club has gone on. The, this, this is only just some of the honours they achieved from a very early on. Uh, and great number of players have played with distinction uh, and represented their county indeed. But much more importantly than that, many thousands of young players have been introduced to the game and by wearing the traditional blue and white of St. Michael's uh, Club. Yeah, Tom, uh, that's a
0: great story. I love that story. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, is, yeah. you know, in a lot of these housing estates back in the... Well, at the time you're talking about, but also right into the 70s, I'm thinking of Rahoon, where they put a large number of people and families together with no sporting facilities whatsoever. No, nothing. I don't think there was even a post office in the Rahoon um, complex no. for no, some no community. Community
1: center, nothing like that. No, no, you're
0: quite right. I mean, that was such so short-sighted of them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But that's a great
0: story. Is St. Michael's. But they were right?
1: they were very fortunate in Chantilla because. Yeah. Within a few years, uh, three of those four founders had actually, for various reasons, left Chantella, mostly emigration, uh, but it left only Pa Boyle of the original quartet.
0: Good man, Pa.
1: Now, everybody, every club needs a Pa Boyle. He just dedicated himself (laughs) to progressing the game, he organized training, he picked teams, he arranged games, he refereed games. He took care of his players. He, he at the same time, more or less, as the club was founded, the Streets League was founded. And he was one of the founders of that. Uh, the Chantella team was known as Father Lally's after a great priest who had been a curate in, in that parish for a very long time, a very progressive man. And uh, I remember playing many games against Father Lally's and indeed against Michael's. Uh, and in those early years, there was a, a pitch. I know the locals regarded it as Croke Park, but uh, it certainly was a long way from that. Yeah, uh, it was very primitive anyway. But uh, my memory of it playing Father Lely's was Pad Boyle running up and down the sideline, <laughs> urging his team on, "Come on, mm. you got it!" And you know, constantly chanting and and encouraging them. He was wonderful. Yes, and yes, he was. Very much below the radar, in a sense, because if you look at a lot of the photographs of winning teams, you will never find him at all. Uh, but he was very lucky. He had people like Mick O'Toole and John Di- Michael Dignan, Sergeant McNulty, Micheal Higgins. In those formative years, they they were very loyal to the club. and uh, <clears throat> he. But it was Pa who was the engine, really, that drove the whole lot. He he incidentally, he worked in uh, Higgins's for a good while and later in Flaherty Markets. But he was buried with his um, half-brother, who was Joe... um, What's going straight out of my head? Joe Potter Potter from Shantala. And unfortunately, the family were not in any way... um, able to put a headstone over their grave but this is going to be rectified on Sunday next oh, that's at, I think at 3 o'clock yeah. in Rahun Cemetery when the President of the GAA Larry McCarthy will in fact unveil a headstone over the grave of Paboyle and Joe Potter and uh, <clears throat> there will be a brief ceremony there and then the speeches later in St. Michael's Clubhouse and I think it's just such a lovely kind of community gesture yeah. and such a wonderful way yeah. of saying thank you, Pat. Thank yeah. you for all you have done. And thank you, Joe Potter indeed, for yeah. being such a feature of, of Chantal and Life for all those it's years. Joe was yeah. a disabled man. And, and I think it's just such a wonderful community gesture. Yeah. And congratulations yeah. to St. Michael's Club.
0: Well, that is really an exceptional story. Um, I'm not too surprised about Chantiller. It's a very, um, it's got a great sense of community there. Um, you know there really there really is, and uh, there are wonderful people who came from Chantara. But you're, again, I say there were you know the building these schemes without sporting facilities was a terrible thing to do. Yes. But that Perfect. has really changed now. And one of the great promoters of sport, of course, is the GAA now, and I see them yes. in all the areas around Galway. In fact, I think on a Saturday there isn't a blade of grass in the town, in the city that doesn't have a team of some sort playing GAA uh, sport at all ages, young kids, girls, dads, everybody, and parents coming down to watch. And it's a wonderful thing. And I must say the GAA are to be commended the way they foster sport amongst young people. It really is exceptionally good to see it. I'm delighted to hear that story. What a lovely story.
1: In in Uh, those early days of the uh, Streets League, <clears throat> Excuse me, they had just converted the swamp swamp from being a, a city dump into yes. pitches. Yeah. But unfortunately, with all the efforts and attempts they made at cleaning it up, there were still bits of glass or bits of tin sticking yeah. out here and there. And we were always asked when we were playing on the pitch, would we please anything like that that we saw or found, would we please carry it over and drop it at the wall? And a lot of kids in my day went off to the hospital to have an anti-tetanus shot after yeah. cutting themselves on something. Oh, Lord. Now, yeah. that's in my memory. And and uh, yeah. so you're right. Here was the city. Uh, now, the the swamp today is a wonderful facility and much used. And as you say, every blade of glass, glass is happily covered on Saturdays and Sundays. So long may it continue like that.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes, and I think it will continue, actually. I think it's going from strength to strength. Uh, I love in my house, if there's a game on in the Pierce Stadium, you hear the roar from the crowd. I I really love that. It's part of the the Sunday, uh, I must say, in Salt Hill. Tom, that's such a a good story. And um, it's just lovely to see that people are honoured you know even at this late stage in their you know in, in yeah. their memories and it's just yeah. so well worth doing and i'd say that's probably typical of the gaa they're very conscientious you know that they do foster a great spirit um, and they really do and and that yeah. is as important as the game itself and uh, i love that they do that tom yeah. that that's that's a great story that's a lovely story um yeah i'm very impressed with that Paboyle. Well, t- well, yeah. what
1: are you going to impress me with? Well, this <laughs> well it's,
0: I'm still I'm still slightly caught up in this uh, Irish diaspora because um, even though I'm leaving New York now, you'll be glad to hear. I'm moving on uh, to to just look at the argument that a lot of people, uh, including several powerful bishops, McHale and Chum. The Land League leaders, Michael Davitt, Charles Parnell, they were against any kind of assisted emigration. They really felt that, no, people should stay on the land and we fight the good fight. And of course, the Land League was very successful and did indeed fight the good fight. But there was nothing there for a lot of these families there. You know, it was just so tragic there was yeah. nothing there they were dependent on uh, i've got a, a doctor's report um which he was he gave to this man tuke you you mentioned tuke before yes yeah, uh, yeah a really extraordinary man that's you know d- very well honored in connemara for the work he did he of course he was a quaker he was sent over in the 1870s uh, to investigate what is going on and of course all he could do was to report the terrible plight uh, of the people from the land the uh, terrible evictions particularly in this that part of the world by the buried estate there were wicked things done people were destitute so whether they were right to leave and to seek uh, sort of help to leave the land or not really is a probably an intellectual an academic question the yeah. people were desperate there was a report i have um, given to chuke that uh, he was such a conscientious man he went to the midwestern america and he went to canada to see if there was land there that people could settle on he'd heard the horror stories of the Five Points areas in New York City, the slums in Boston and Chicago. He just felt that wasn't the right place to send these people who had suffered so much to just to join the queue there and to end up in those human heaps of people, you know, struggling for existence. So as if they left the hardships of their little places in Connemara and Mayo and the West to end up in a In a slum like that was just no, no break. So he went to America and uh, he sorted out, particularly the Midwest he was interested in, because as the railroads rolled westwards, um, there was a lot of opportunities. Towns were growing and he felt this was the place for people to to put down their anchor and to start a new life. So he came back to Clifton and the local clergy were very much in sympathy with what he was planning and the medical officer told him and I quote he said the dozens of these unfortunate people especially those recently evicted have begged me to lay their case before you mr. Duke, those who depend solely on the pittance granted them by the union and the charity of their neighbors they are only too anxious to emigrate but have no means not even the clothing needed and chuke and the um, he wrote a series of letters to the London Times, which probably prompted the English the London government eventually to come forward with some money. But he was, in fact, responsible for assisting well over two, nearly 3,000 people from that area uh, to go to the Midwest. And uh, how they succeeded there, I, I can tell you in a few weeks time, because I got sidetracked. I got sidetracked by another um. Assisted emigration. This was to um, this was to Minnesota, and there was a very interesting priest in Liverpool, uh, Father James Nugent. Uh, I, I don't know whether he's Irish or not. I, I'm not sure. But he was familiar with the plight of uh, some of the tenants in, in, in Connemara, particularly he used to come over here, probably fishing. I'm not sure why, but he used to come over regularly. He was a man of great energy and he was a very well-respected priest in Liverpool. He was a great man for fighting for uh, children's poverty and um you know, looking after the poor and he was very well regarded by all the churches there and seeing that really there was no hope for a lot of these people who were evicted, who were really dependent, as the medical officer said, on the slimmest of charities. He wrote to a friend of his, Bishop, um, the Bishop of uh, of, um, St. Paul, Minnesota, A guy called Archbishop John Ireland, who was in fact Irish. (laughs) His family emigrated from Kilkenny during the famine. He became a priest in in St. Paul and was very well got again, like James Nugent. He was very well got in that he worked for all religions. He was very outspoken on behalf of the African-American community. And uh, some of his statements was quoted around the country, which didn't go down very well. But he was a strong Christian. Christian man. And he did an amazing thing. He negotiated with the railway company to give him land. And what he started to do, he started to bring some of the destitute Irish farmers from the slums of New York out into Minnesota, out to this lovely farmland where they were looked after as best as possible, but at least they had a good chance in starting a good life. Now it didn't suit everybody, but those that did, find, you know, that they could farm there, they could get by, uh, it was a great success. So James Nugent wrote to uh, the Archbishop and said, look, I, I, I will sponsor 300 people, 300 families here. If you can get them land uh, in Minnesota near St. Paul, if you can get, supply the land, I can, I'll supply the immigrants who badly need okay. help. And the Archbishop didn't want to do it at first, but then he said, well, it's not quite what I do, but he said, nevertheless, I have, you know, the the opportunity to get land. And he provided 50 farms, and each farm had 160 acres of land, on which was built a small frame house, and he ordered that five acres of the prairie sod should be turned for immediate planting, so he really prepared the ground very well. Sure, and yeah, it was really wonderful. So Nugent goes back and he asks the local clergy in the Clifton Newport area, "Will you get together the families, and uh, we'll see what we can do?" And they did get together, and um, the families uh, began to gather in Galway uh, in in June 1880, and. Uh, there was quite a touching uh, farewell there. Now, these people were really quite desperate, and that's important for later on as to how they survived. But emaciated as they were, they did realise that this was an opportunity that should not be thrown away, despite the publicity that they should stay on the land and fight the good fight. To them, that meant nothing, really. So anyway, th- they... The the Connacht Telegraph tells us that on the morning of the 11th of June, uh, they all attended Mass in the Pro Cathedral, St. Nicholas's. Uh, The local priest there, Father Dooley, preached them, uh, wished them well, but said he was going to give them the sermon on the boat, which was the SS Austrian, which in fact was a feature in Galway Bay taking immigrants away. It was belonging to the Allen line, not sadly the Galway line that had long gone. by by the back door but um the comic telegraph tells us that father Dooley came on board and he told them that uh you know that he he said he gave a very touching and eloquent speech he said they were parting from their old country for land and new homes which had been prepared for them such a parting he said was akin to a death because sterile as were the rocks and hills of Connemara, every spot was dear to the people going. And he begged them never to forget the old country and to continue to speak the Irish language. They might never be addressed again by a priest in their own language. And he hoped that his words would not be forgotten. And with that, of course, they were ferried out uh, to the Austrian, waiting out in the bay. Um, Father Patrick Nugent also turned up. And he referred briefly to the attacks made on him by people who were against his work, who was against assisted emigration. And he said, well, that was the burden he will just have to bear, that he believed this was the best way forward. And for the others going, they had hope in their hearts. And uh, he asked them, please, to repay the money that um, he was spending on them for their passage out. But And he would assist further people if they did do so. And the railway companies uh, in St. Paul said that we will take them from the uh, from New York Harbour. We will take them out to uh, St. Yeah. Paul. So that was the set of the story. It's it's a very interesting story, what happens. Um, You know, despite the publicity that they shouldn't immigrate at all, you can imagine, Tom, what family would not want the best for their family? Oh, what yeah. fa- you know, we see yeah. it today yeah. I- yeah. A- at the border of the Mexican-American, you know, people desperate to get yeah. some kind of place where they can settle down, where there is hope that they can progress their lives. Staying where they were, there was no hope. So it might have been easy for Michael davis and, and Parnell to say, no, stay at home. But it really was a choice I don't blame families for making. No,
1: not right. Yeah. It was about survival. Totally,
0: Tom. Totally. Yeah. And survival <laughs> with some dignity. They had no dignity of where they were. Yes,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. yeah. But the 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 Tuke emigration, in fact, has been very well- Uh, covered by the Clifton Heritage and the Galway County Council. They published a booklet, which I just only recently got, actually, Mr. Chukes' Fund. So I've got a lot of stories to tell about that. Uh, I will follow the Minnesota settlement, first of all, because that has an amazing outcome. And then to perhaps to do something on the Mr. Chukes' assisted emigration. It's again another Galway story, Tom. Uh, Lots of people you know, yes. settling in America, who are reaching back today, you know, to try and find out the origins of their own families. And I'm glad to say there are various, you know, um, you know uh, heritage centers where people can write to and get information. And quite a lot of information, uh, information now has been accrued. So, you know, it's it's a two-way traffic. Uh, yeah, the descendants is. of the Chuk settlements and the Minnesota settlements writing back home to Connemara asking for information. So yeah. it's just a story that goes on and it's not all tragic. Some of it is good, but it was a difficult yeah. choice no matter what. If you stayed behind, it was difficult. If you went, it was also challenging.
1: Yes, indeed. It was part of life in post famine Ireland, unfortunately.
0: an extraordinary, Tom. I yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we see it being played out in various parts of the world today. And I don't think we're disinterested in it. The Irish have taken in uh, various uh, groups of people. I think it really has to. We're very fortunate in this Ireland with very good education system. We have lots of ways of helping families that are desperate. Of course, they must qualify to come here. But, um, you know, I, I, I hope we are welcoming to immigrants that are desperate. That's all. Indeed.
1: Amen. Amen. All right, Tom, will we leave it there? (laughs) Until next week, Rami. Yes, Tom,
0: I look forward to it.
1: All right, Tom. I I
0: enjoy our talks.